It's Friday, October 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some coronavirus vaccine trial participants have spoken out about their experience so far and are reporting fever, body aches, and exhaustion, but say that the side effects did not last more than a day and in the end were worth it. Participants in Moderna and Pfizer's trials say that they felt getting more side effects after the second dose. Berkeley Lovelace, healthcare reporter at CNBC, joins us for how participants felt after getting their shots. Next, in some key battleground states, there has been an early surge in Democrats voting by mail, and it's worrying some GOP leaders. Republicans fear that some of the messaging from the president may turn off voters from voting by mail and hope that many in their party will turn out in person to vote. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, a major hospital and healthcare network has been battling with a massive ransomware attack that crippled its digital systems across the country. Universal Health Services has had to route some patients to other emergency rooms and facilities, delay appointments and test results, and have also had to move to an all-paper system. Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired, joins us for the latest ransomware attack on a hospital. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Yes, we're now just hearing from a few people in in the late-stage trials what they've been experiencing. Some are more intense than others. But I think the main thing is just now making it known and making it public so people are aware before they're going, potentially go to get these doses or shots. Joining us now is Berkeley Lovelace, healthcare reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Berkeley. Thanks for having me. One of the things that's uh, so interesting about going through this right now, going through the pandemic and the development of a vaccine is I think a lot of Americans are kind of getting an education course in how this thing really progresses. We're hearing so much about vaccines anytime a, a new clinical trial starts, when we're hearing good news or bad news about it. So wanted to keep following up on that. And we're hearing from some participants in some of the trials, uh, specifically Moderna and Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine trials, We're hearing about some of the symptoms, some of the side effects that they're feeling after taking their shots. So they're getting some high fever, body aches, headaches, exhaustion for some of them. These are normal things. These are things that they knew were coming that people were experiencing before, but we're just starting to hear now from some actual participants. So Berkeley, tell us a little bit about what you're hearing. So these are Moderna and Pfizer are both leading in the late stage testing for two vaccines. And so we spoke with five participants, three are in Moderna's study and two are in Pfizer's. Um, And yeah, as you said, they're reporting high fever, body aches, bad headaches. A couple of them said they're experiencing day-long exhaustion. One participant said that they should probably tell people to maybe take the shot or the second dose on Friday just because they may feel exhausted for the next day and may not want to go to work. This isn't uncommon for vaccines. Vaccines commonly have side effects. Uh, Some vaccines are actually more unpleasant than others. But yeah, we're now just hearing from a few people in in the late stage trials what they've been experiencing. Some are more intense than others. But I think the main thing is just now making it known and making it public so people are aware before they're going potentially go to get these doses or shots. Both of these are two shot protocols, right? That's correct. There is one that's in development and late stage testing. That's one shot. That's uh, Johnson and Johnson. But both Moderna and Pfizer, they're going to require two shots. So you're going to have to take one shot and then probably come back a month later to get the second dose. And what a lot of these participants are experiencing, the way you said, 
the first shot, you'll maybe get a few symptoms here and there, but that second one kind of puts you down for a little minute. Is this a matter of dosing or this late in the stage in these clinical trials, have they already kind of determined what the dosing is going to be already? There were a few vaccines where in the early stage they were testing higher doses and people were having more severe reactions. It's not entirely clear whether or not this has to do with the dosing. And I mean, it, it appears that a lot of the people we spoke with said the first dose was pretty easy. They may have experienced like a mild headache or like had a little bit of nausea. But after the second dose, that's when they really started feeling more of these intense symptoms. And so it appears the addition of the booster shot is creating these maybe more severe symptoms. Um, it's also important to note that because this is a double-blind study where the patients don't know what treatment they got, they could either have gotten a placebo or a vaccine, it's possible that their symptoms could be an unrelated illness or they got the placebo or possibly just a reaction to a placebo. But some of the symptoms, for example, a high fever, one of them had a fever of over 104. That's likely not a placebo effect and probably something either a result of a, an illness or from the vaccine. And so I think that's just important to point out. The participants that you spoke to all said these side effects are short-lived and they all feel like it's worth going through this. They respect the science, they trust it, and the inconveniences and short-term illness that you could get is kind of worth it all if in the long run you are protected more from the actual virus. The people we spoke with really wanted this to work. None of them identified as anti-vaxxers. They were all very pro-vaccine. A lot of them joined this because they wanted to help in the process of developing a vaccine as quickly as possible. So they're all pro-vaccine. And a lot of them are, and all of them said that the symptoms were kind of worth it for the chance of this potentially being protective against the coronavirus. But yeah, they did say that a lot of these symptoms lasted about a day, sometimes less. And the symptoms varied among them, but many of them could be in pretty intense for a few hours. It is about messaging and educating the public. They should know that these companies are going through the pains to make sure these are safe before they roll anything out. That's also why the drug makers have gone out of their way to say that they will not submit for emer emergency use authorization or approvals until they feel that they have a data set that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective. Also, one of the people we spoke with who's in the trial also said that they spoke out just because they felt like the message needed to get out there beforehand, not that these vaccines were in any way dangerous, but they wanted to let people know that this is what something that you could expect if you get a, a vaccine just so they know going in. And so I think the messaging has just been very important, especially because I know a lot of infectious disease experts and scientists have been a little bit uneasy based off of the messaging from the U.S. government calling the program Operation Warp Speed and labeling it as like a race and finalist. That type of language can make people uneasy and make it seem like people are cutting corners uh, in the development process. And I know that the scientists working on this and the drug makers always make clear that that's not the case. Berkeley Lovelace, healthcare reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. Who's getting the ballots? Who's sending the ballots? They have people saying you don't need a verified signature. This is a serious threat to our democracy. And the Democrats know that. Joining us now is Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Happy to be here. 
wanted to talk about mail-in voting. This has been getting a lot of attention. It was brought up in the debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. Right now, what we're seeing in a lot of battleground states is that Democratic voters are requesting their mail-in ballots, they're returning them, and they're doing this in greater numbers than Republicans so far. Uh, And it's worrying some of the GOP party leaders that some of the attacks that President Trump has been doing might suppress some of that vote. They're thinking still that their big turnout is going to be on Election Day in person. But Amy, tell us what we're seeing in some of these numbers in these battleground states. So we took a look at five battleground states where they not only publish data on how many people have requested ballots and how many people have already returned them as well, but that also break down by party registration. Not every state does that, but these five states are battlegrounds that do. Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Maine, and Iowa. And it really offered a pretty vivid window of what's happening out there. 52% of those who have Requested ballots in those states are Democrats, registered Democrats. 28% are Republicans and about 20% are unaffiliated or independent. That's an enormous advantage for Democrats. And we have additional data from four more really important battlegrounds from the parties who track this data with their own sort of modeling and internal databases. Ohio, Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Wisconsin are all showing similar trends with a Democratic advantage among those who have requested ballots. What's significant about this is that it means that the votes that are being banked ahead of the election are going to be heavily Democratic. And we sort of knew that this was likely this year because President Trump has been discouraging mail balloting and claiming that it's ripe for fraud. And because Democrats have been trying to gird the system and encourage their voters to use mail balloting. We have polling data that shows that Republicans are less comfortable with mail balloting and that President Trump's rhetoric on the potential for fraud, even though it is not rooted in any evidence, has made a difference in the Republican sort of view of the integrity of mail balloting. But what's really interesting about what we found is that we also talked to Republicans who said, yeah, we're looking at the same data and we're scared to death. We are really worried that this is going to hurt us. We do expect that we will bring out more voters on Election Day than Democrats, and we will be able to make up some of the ground, but we're not sure we can make up all of the ground. And there's an inherent disadvantage of having to wait until Election Day to know whether they're going to make up that ground. Like every vote that the Democrats bank is a vote that they don't have to worry about. They can spend less money on that individual. They can focus their remaining money on turning out the voters who haven't voted yet, whereas Republicans are going to have to do their get out the vote operation to the vast majority of their voters all the way up to Election Day without the certainty of knowing whether they will turn out. Part of the problem with this whole discussion on mail-in voting is the messaging by the president. The messaging has been relentless, but it hasn't been clarified really throughout the whole thing, I think. You know, he doesn't necessarily have a problem with absentee balloting. And he kind of explained it a little bit in the debate. You know, I request a ballot. You send it to me. I send it back. He has a problem more with states doing all mail-in voting or just sending everybody that's eligible to vote a mail-in ballot. That's really where he has the problem. And that's where he says there's going to be fraud, even though there's no evidence to that. So part of it is the messaging. But as you mentioned, these local state and local leaders are even going around that. They're still trying to get out the message that you can vote by mail and it is safe. Even the RNC is in on that, where they're having people, uh, other leaders, the president's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, recording messages, urging them to vote by mail. So despite what the president is saying, the party is still trying to get that message out that you can vote by mail. 
That's correct. Although I would slightly disagree with one thing that you said, that there really is a distinction between absentee balloting and mail balloting. That's a term that's used interchangeably in most states. It is true that there are some states that mail ballots out to every registered voter, every active voter. But the states that do that, with one or two exceptions, have been doing mail balloting, all mail universal balloting for years and have vanishingly small instances of fraud. And so I don't think it's accurate that there's a distinction. And I think that President Trump's rhetoric on the potential for fraud in mail balloting has affected people in all states that offer mail balloting, including those that require you to request a ballot, including those where you have to have an excuse to vote, such as being elderly or out of state or ill. And that sort of suppressive effect of his rhetoric is evident in the polling about who plans to vote early versus on election day. And it's evident in these numbers that I found on who's requested ballots. We're also seeing that there might be some type of post-election day legal battle. Republicans are going to try to challenge ballots that might be missing signatures or the proper envelopes, no postmarks. So that could set up for an even longer wait for the final tally of who wins the presidency. So we've seen so much legal battles already, and they've, for the most part, focused on what the rules will be. So, for instance, you'll you'll have a lawsuit, and there is a lawsuit in Pennsylvania right now about whether ballot boxes can be used to drop off mail ballots or whether a ballot will be counted if it is outside of its secrecy envelope or in North Carolina, whether two witness signatures are required or only one. And so those battles are all about shaping the rules. What will happen after the election is a whole new set of litigation about which ballots get counted, which ballots qualify. Does this qualify as a witness signature? Should this one be discarded because it's not an official secrecy envelope? Should this ballot be counted because it doesn't have any postmark at all? And the law says that a ballot will be accepted if it is postmarked by Election Day and received three days after the election or something like that. I mean, the rules vary widely from the state to state. So that's going to be the distinction of the nature of the legal battles that we're dealing with now versus the ones that we deal with after the election. Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, sure. Take it easy. They started to propagate out throughout their networks, and so they say that they proactively took down all their IT networks, all their digital networks, to try to stop it in its tracks. Joining us now is Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Lily. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about another ransomware attack, this one on a major U.S. hospital chain, Universal Health Services. They operate a bunch of hospitals, and it's a big healthcare network of more than 400 facilities across the U.S. and Britain. They suffered a ransomware attack, and they took down all their digital networks. I think the places affected have had to go to, like, paper logs and do everything on paper. So uh, these things tend to be a huge problem for hospitals, especially, and other corporations. But, Lily, tell us what's going on with Universal Health Services. They were hit with a ransomware attack very early Sunday morning. and. Either the attack happened right then or shortly before then, but they started to propagate out throughout their networks. And so they say that they proactively 
took down all their IT networks, all their digital networks to try to stop it in its tracks. And so the ransomware wouldn't infect more. And they were instructing employees, as you said, at facilities around the country, hundreds of facilities to keep all computers off, switch totally to paper So care has been happening and progressing, but there's definitely an impact. Employees at UHS facilities that I spoke to and other reporters are, you know, speaking to others, they're all saying that they're just heroically doing the best they can and keeping the quality up as much as possible. But some surgeries are being canceled, some procedures, people rerouted to other hospitals. It's definitely a big mess. Do we know what they're holding ransom? Is it just the operation of the computer systems or are they threatening to release any type of personal data of patients? What do we know about that? There isn't sort of a public understanding of what's going on with the ransom demand. UHS has said in their statements that they don't see evidence of data being accessed. They say copied or misused. And that's for either patient data or employee data. So that's what they're saying. But there isn't a lot of visibility into what the ransom ask is and how UHS is proceeding. So it's tough to say what could happen. It definitely can be the case in these types of ransomware attacks that there's also data exfiltration. And then either the initial ask has to do with a threat about releasing that or there'll be a first ransomware request just to get services back online, first ransom request, and then a second follow-up request, whether you pay or not, later of, by the way, we have all this data, pay us not to leak it. This is an increasing problem in a lot of different places. There was another instance where a hacker got into a public school district in Las Vegas. They actually leaked out a bunch of social security numbers, student grades, other private information. So these guys do follow through on these threats sometimes. But I know a lot of industries say that they don't want to play that game. They don't want to give into this because it just makes them more susceptible. You know, there'll be more attacks and then more money being handed around. It's just a really complicated situation, truly. And what I'm hearing from researchers is that they agree that the sort of tempo or the pace of how many attacks are happening is really on the rise. You know, it kind of feels like that lately. We keep hearing about them, even though ransomware has been around for quite a while. But folks agree that this really is just at a fever pitch now. And some researchers are proposing, you know, as you're saying, blanket bans on paying ransoms or, you know, making things illegal to try to get rid of that incentive and just say, we're not doing this anymore. And you can really see the merit of that, but it's just pretty complicated because the long-term benefit of that is clear. But in the short term, sometimes if a organization can't recover, and especially if it's somewhere like a hospital where maybe they're concerned about patient safety in general, but also perhaps loss of life, you know, and that's weighing on everyone's minds, You're just so desperate for a quick fix if you don't have the right mitigations and protections in place that it's really hard to tell people don't do this. So we're going to have to see what plays out because it really is getting to a crisis situation. Lily Hay Newman, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.